and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a weekly podcast bringing readers and writers of Australian fiction together. I'm Claudine Tanellis. As an avid reader and passionate advocate for Australian fiction, I make it my mission to spotlight local talent. So if you're looking for your next read or simply want to learn more about the Australian literary scene, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and relax. This episode is brought to you by Affirm Press. Listeners, a few years ago, Sydney siders were rocked by news of a fraudster living amongst us. A woman who had taken advantage of her closest friends and family and tricked them into handing over breathtaking sums of money as investments, but in reality to fund her decadently lavish lifestyle. While the news of that woman's ultimate demise many months later must have been doubly awful for her family and closest friends, it became the subject of many news reports and articles, a coronial inquest, and even inspired a television miniseries. And for my next guest author, it inspired part of what became her debut novel. Liz Foster is a Sydney-based author originally from Britain who began her writing journey some seven years ago. The Good Woman's Guide to Making Better Choices, published by Affirm Press, is her first novel, and listeners, it's a cracker. A thoroughly enjoyable read about marriage, parenting, fraud, infidelity, and of all things, goat's cheese. And I'm delighted to have the chance to speak with Liz about her book and journey on the podcast today. Welcome, Liz. Oh, thank you so much, Claudine, for having me. It's just such a pleasure and so interesting to hear someone else introduce something that's been in your head for so long. <laughs> I can only imagine. I wanted to say officially congratulations on the impending release of your debut. As we speak, we're still a little while off publication, but I wanted to know, how are you feeling? Are you nervous? Are you excited? Very excited. But honestly, I think until I see it on a shelf in a in a bookshop, obviously, I'm not going to believe it's real. So <laughs> every stage of the process from getting an agent to gorgeous publisher Kelly being interested in my book to then inviting me out to lunch, me thinking, oh, that doesn't feel normal, publishers. But, you know, I just refuse to get ahead of myself. And even once I signed the contract, I thought, oh, you never, you won't really know until it's on the shelf. So I just don't think I'll believe it's actually real until until it's literally for sale. But it's been very exciting so far, just joining the throng of other writers, whether they're debut writers or established writers, and just being able to share my news. And they've all been so wonderfully embracing and thrilled. And all oh, this because I've kind of been circling in the... <laughs> in the background for five or six years and you know for me to sort of finally have something that I can call my own is is really thrilling so yeah excited and nervous <laughs> that's so wonderful to hear well, you're talking to the queen of circling I heard somebody <laughs> say the other day what was it an author adjacent life <laughs> Uh, I love that. I have literally been living it. (laughs) Well, I think I'm I'm going to aspire to being that person as well, because certainly it's how I felt for the last five, six years, you know, sort of the lovely Joanna Nell, who is launching my book, who's just, you know, been such a huge help to me through the years, read my manuscripts and given me advice and she said to me Liz I'm so thrilled for you because you know you'd come along to all the writers events and book launches and you know I just really admire the fact that you kept going but of course from my perspective I was just doing what I was told you know I was just following writers advice just go off and try and network and meet people and get to know people because from the very first 
word that I ever wrote, I did not know one single person either in the publishing industry or a writer. I knew literally no one and nothing. So it does feel like it was a long apprenticeship. But having said that, I don't think I could have got my book published if I hadn't uh, put all the work in. Indeed. Now, Liz, I must say, and this was something that I said to you before we started recording, but I must say this book was nothing like I imagined it would be, but in a totally brilliant way. It was funny. It was clever. It was insightful and ultimately uplifting. I wanted to ask you if you could tell me about how you came to start writing and did this book end up the way you first imagined it? I think the final, final, the end chapter is not what I had in mind because I never really thought it through that far. All all I really imagined was I tend to start with place, which I know is quite unusual for a writer. I, I like all my books are set in quirky settings. As far as I'm concerned, stories happen everywhere. Let's make it somewhere interesting as well. So good friends in Beechworth. Okay, great. I want to set the book in Beechworth. And then during lockdown, when other people turned to home baking and crafting and whatever else they might do, I became slightly obsessed with crime fraud podcasts. So I started to follow the Lila and Melissa Caddick story. And, and all I could think was, gosh, she's a regular person. And the people she ripped off were regular people, her friends, her family. You know, one of one of the people on the podcast was her best friend. And Melissa, you know, said, you know, oh, look, I'm like I'm like your family too. Why can't I come along to your family parties? Uh, you know, and this woman, her brother, her parents, they all got taken in and all their money because of course they trusted her because she was a family friend. And I just thought to myself, how could you do that? But also how would you feel if that was if that was your partner, if that was you were living a, a lovely life, possibly it didn't work or, you know, you had no need of working because your partner was, was a high income earner and, and your life's pretty normal and happy. And then you find out they've done this awful thing. Uh, and then obviously that's how my story started and then developed. My fraudster is, is the husband rather than the wife. But yes, that was very much the genesis of it. And and certainly the ending, I kind of had a germ of an idea. I certainly didn't want it all to come off pat, but I needed, yeah, (laughs) I needed stuff to happen in it that was going to be a little bit off centre, as it were. I didn't want it to be predictable. Yeah, I made mention of the fraudster and you've identified Melissa Caddick, whose story like kind of captivated the nation for a long time there. At what point in the writing of your novel did you think about using her story? I think it was quite early in the piece because my first first and second drafts were all called working title The Ponzi Scheme (laughs) and her fraud is effectively a Ponzi scheme where you've got new people that you're defrauding coming in and, and the money that they're investing is basically paying the, the original people for their dividends so everyone thinks they're making money. That's how I started to write it and it was very much based on that idea. But what happened was during the Caddick trial and it was in the papers, etc., there was a professor of commercial law, I think it was, that was being quoted and she works, she's a professor at the University of New South Wales and she had given some insight into it. And I thought, oh, she maybe she could be my expert. 
<laughs> I'll, I'll email her and see if she can, you know, lend weight to my uh, research. So I did. And of course, as I said, this was all in lockdown. So this lady, Pamela, was just delightful and delighted to help. And we had a couple of Zooms and she was really helpful. But but the one thing that happened post that was that I realised I couldn't make it a Ponzi scheme because it takes years and years to prosecute, if ever. And whilst, you know, as a writer, you have a certain amount of creative license, you know, I could not, I needed the narrative to basically be more or less 12 months for, for different reasons. So she said, like, it's just not going to work. <laughs> basically, you know, when Asik got to Kadek the night before she disappeared, that was after years of people complaining and nothing happening. And I couldn't just say, okay. So five years later, dot, dot, dot. So Pamela's advice was to make it uh, still a fraud, but a failed startup. So it's more of a Theranos Elizabeth Holmes venture where there's an amazing idea. This company uh, fundraises for these startups. And initially, that's all fine. But then, of course, when the startup stops becoming viable and they continue to fundraise, then that becomes fraud. So that is what the focus of the novel became quite quite quickly. I'm glad I connected with Pamela reasonably early, so I, <laughs> I didn't have to change too much too much in the content. Yeah, fantastic. All right, so I think we've circled around the story a little bit up until this point. So I was wondering if you could tell listeners more about the actual story. So my main protagonist is Libby Popovich. Uh, Libby is married to Ludo, and they have two children, Harrison and Anna. And they live in Bondi. They live in a beautiful penthouse, which has been purpose-built from a knockdown rebuild, got sort of 270-degree views over Bondi. Life is wonderful. But Livy's origins are from Beechworth. She grew up on a goat farm. It's her family farm. Her family still have it. And she misses it and loves it. And even though she appreciates that Bondi is wonderful and the children have got all these opportunities in Sydney, et cetera, et cetera. But every time they go back to the family farm, she sort of has a yearn for it. And Ludo's not so keen on it. He's always busy working. He's allergic to goats. So, you know, there's not that many family trips back. So she's living this golden life and she doesn't look after the finances. And that's not to be critical of her or anyone. But, it, but again, I got this idea from a couple of girlfriends of mine who that their um, families are set quite traditionally. Their husbands are the breadwinners and they have been the homemakers, raised the kids, etc. And that's totally fine. But I'm assuming my friends know where their <laughs> husband's income is coming from. But whereas Libby doesn't, I mean, she does, she thinks she does, but of course she doesn't. So Ludo's making his money in an underhand way. And the catalyst is when they have a dinner party and it's been pitched as as a, a fundraising venture. So it's like a sort of an intimate pitch. And they pitch this, as we subsequently know, failed startup scheme and all the investors sign up for it. Soon after that, you know, the axe falls and everything goes pear-shaped. She loses everything and he gets pulled off to jail, which is not really much of a spoiler because it's fairly early in the book. The main story from there, I guess, is as a reader, I wanted readers to think, well, gosh, 
what, what would I do? And, and how would you cope? And she's not hopeless. She's not useless. She's just been possibly naive. And she wants to support him. She loves her husband. She loves the kids. The kids are both quite unhappy at school. So she's always sort of been half anxious about them. But now he's in jail and she gets to make all the decisions. So in some ways, she gets to call the shots and it actually becomes quite liberating for her. And there's plenty of sort of comical mishaps along the way. <laughs> and she's determined to get the money back. She thinks, how can I, you know, she feels complicit in in hosting the dinner party. And she thinks, right. I'm going to do my best to try and repair things, even even though he's in jail. And that becomes pretty much the story of how her character arc develops and what they do to redeem themselves, as it were. And, and then, of course, you know, as a reader, you're thinking, all right, well, what will happen when Buddha comes out of jail? So, As I said, it was totally surprising on so many levels, and I, I absolutely <laughs> loved it. So many wonderful characters, and the setting in particular I really enjoyed. And as you say, you know, the novel is set between Sydney's affluent eastern suburbs, Bondi Beach specifically, and the northeast of Victoria in a town called Beechworth. Are two incredibly unique and different settings. Bondi, I understood. Why Beechworth, though? Like, what what was it about Beechworth that made you want to set it there? So I'm very familiar with the town and the region because some very, very close friends of ours moved there from Sydney probably about 18 years ago. And we have visited them many, many times and absolutely loved it each time. And I always thought to myself, oh, this would be a great place for a story. So when I was crafting the seeds of the ideas of the book, as it were, in my in my brain and the Melissa Caddick angle, and then, okay, now that needs to change slightly, but what would you do? Okay, there's a fraudster. I thought to myself, oh, where can Libby go? What, what will she do while she's trying to make ends meet? Well, she can go back home and I'll make her come from Beechworth. <laughs> why not you know it's as good as anywhere and then of course it just became a character in itself almost you know I was able to inject lots of elements in terms of her backstory and bring together many elements that it kind of felt quite like a perfect ending at the climax when it, it all felt like it was meant to be in Beechworth so it, it worked really well but it but I don't think I could have picked any other town in Australia in the regions because I just don't know any others so well I don't know if I'll ever be able to write about a town or I used to live in Bondi so I'm very familiar with it and I'm very familiar with Beechworth so I'm going to have to just live in all these different places in Australia (laughs) I want to write about them I love Beechworth, as I said to you before we started recording. I, I lived for some time in Albury and I was lucky to be able to explore many of those border towns while I was living there. But I was also intrigued by your decision to set the book between two actual places. Most people I speak to, Liz, are more inclined to set their stories in fictional towns, particularly mm. when, when we come to rural settings. So was that something that you were conscious of while you were writing and did you encounter any obstacles or have any concerns about doing this? Look, I'm only discovering now, Claudine, that possibly it's not the thing to do. <laughs> but oops, too late. I think I just I just filled my acknowledgements with disclaimers to say, look, there's no such place as the Beechworth Tavern and the Beechworth Methodist Church. And and actually there is a jail, but it's on the other side of the border. So because <laughs> those things I think from a creative license perspective, are okay. But my overall description of the town, it's historic 
references to the jail and to Ned Kelly. That's all very real and and relevant to the story. So there was no reason for me to change it and make it a fictitious place. And again, it's a six-hour drive from Sydney, and that was relevant to, to my story. So it was perfectly placed. It was in another state. It was far enough away that, you know, it really did feel like a, a different place altogether. Yes, so I decided to keep it. But yes, there's lots of disclaimers in the acknowledgements. <laughs> well, interestingly, the copy of the book that I got, which is an advanced reader's copy, didn't actually have the acknowledgements in mm. all the disclaimers. So it was very okay. your perspective. Uh, well, there you go. Actually, it was quite funny because, well, I mean, the editor, obviously editors are amazing people and pick up on stuff that you think, you know, you, you didn't think of, even if you thought you thought of everything. And one of her points was there's a tiny, tiny reference to Beechworth Methodist Church near the end of the book. And she wrote, there is no Methodist Church in Beechworth. <laughs> and I thought, oh, does that matter, though? So <laughs> it doesn't really matter. Does it matter? It doesn't really. Mm. I decided that that didn't matter. It was like a passing reference. But there are many pubs. And so I've just named my pub, which is quite central to the story the Beechworth Tavern which doesn't exist and there's obviously a jail in Beechworth as well and that is relevant to my story and again that was where the idea partly came from I thought great she can go back to the hometown and then the husband's in jail and it's near the farm so that all works well because they can visit and then my clever financial professor said oh no you can only you have to go to jail in a state that you're convicted I went ah. Oh. So obviously none of that could change. So I just basically moved my jail over the border into Albury, New South Wales, where there's no jail. <laughs> but that was very much creative license. I decided that readers would forgive me that. But but actually the narrative of the open air jail is, is very much based on Beechworth Prison. You know, it has its own Raptor rehabilitation program. and It's a white collar prison. Everyone's kind of out and about doing their own thing. So mm. <laughs> yes, lots of it was taken from real life. As I said, Liz, there was so much about this book to love. And I think you've done a really wonderful job of balancing the dark and the light themes in this book. But one of the things I was particularly impressed by, and you've touched on it earlier, was your spotlighting and the need for people. And I would venture to suggest women in particular to be across their family finances and not leave all financial decisions mm. to their partner. Was this something that you were specifically concerned to address in this book? It's a specific concern, but something that embedded itself in my brain years ago, and I don't know why, but it's just one of those rare, rare random things, was an interview I saw with, I think she was a lawyer, a lady anyway, a professional. Yeah. It might have been like a breakfast TV piece, for example. And she was talking about the importance of women particularly, all people, obviously, but women particularly, to be financially independent. And she was using examples of her friends saying, you know, I've got many friends at my stage of life. So this lady would have been in her maybe late 40s, early 50s. And she said, you know, my friends are saying, well, look, it's, it's this is, I'm fine. You know, my husband's the income earner, but I do everything else. And, you know, it works well. And that's great. And she's saying, look, I'm not saying that doesn't work for people. Don't get me wrong. But everyone who says, yes, it's working for us, you know, inevitably things happen, things change, and not everybody, but very often, 
five years, 10 years time, your life doesn't look the same as it used to. And divorce happens and assets are split. And then one of you has a continues to have a high income earning potential and the other one doesn't. And this is what this lady was trying to impress upon people without coming over as though she was patronizing and saying you all need to go out and work and da, da, da. you know it's not about that of course a lot of it's life choices but it did just strike me and I thought God, it's just it's so important isn't it for you know we're trying to raise these strong women and both my children are girls and if they decide to get married and give up work and have babies and never work again well obviously that's completely their choice but I want to be able to embed in them uh, the fact that you've got all these skills and talents and you need to be able to hang on to them and nurture them because you never know when you might have to use them. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about Libby for a moment. She was, as you mentioned, I think, you know, she was the epitome of a loyal wife who supported her husband and his business and trusted him wholeheartedly trusted with their financial him. health. She never questioned where the money for their lifestyle was coming from, in, as you said. I think she thought she knew where the money was coming from. And in fact, I think it's fair to say that she rarely questioned him at all, as we mm-hmm. find out later to her detriment. And I have to say, Liz, I feel quite passionate about this topic. I'm a mother of a girl and also two boys, but I'm a, as a mother of a girl, I love books that call out partnerships where there is financial and or other abuse. And I wanted to talk a little bit more about this. It, it's really important for everybody, whatever sex you are whatever size shape nationality wherever you're from every single human being on the planet to be financially independent and it's definitely something I'm instilling in my girls as I raise them and it's something that's I'm one of three girls myself and we are all highly independent our parents grew up in a family with with next to nothing I'm not saying not trying to make it a sub story about my upbringing but really we had to fend for ourselves and do do a lot for ourselves and and that's where a lot of the learning came from I've heard so many stories so many sad sad stories in recent years about women in our age group in the 50s I think uh, women in their 50s is the biggest category of people who are homeless and many women live in their cars because again They've, they've raised their kids, they've sacrificed their careers for the family. It's been a, a joint decision and it's worked well, but when it stops working, they are disadvantaged. You know, they might come walk away with half the assets, but they don't have nearly the amount of earning potential that their partners do. And it's very, very difficult for some people. And it's very difficult, you know, you try and reskill and you might be able to go back to college, you might be able to learn things. Of course, we would all love to do that, but you're not going to go to university and do a finance degree in your 50s and suddenly have the earning capacity of, you know, a six-figure salary. You're just not. So for Libby, she is a smart lady. She has a career. She's a graphic designer, but she's never really pursued it because at the end of the day, you know, she's managing a home. She does a little bit here and there. Uh, she does a lot of work for Ludo's company. Uh, and in on the whole, that that's that's what's worked for them. And it's only really when everything goes pear-shaped that she actually thinks, oh, I, I don't know that I knew as much as I should have. But it's only when it goes pear-shaped she thinks that. <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting. I can certainly 
see that many women will identify with Libby's uh, predicament <laughs> when things do yes. take their shape. And I think in many ways, Ludo's scheming and subsequent downfall is the making of Libby. She's forced to reevaluate her life on so many levels, but like many women, she's reluctant to sever ties and she's trying to balance so many competing considerations at once, isn't she? That's right. She's set on loyalty. So she, her father left the family when she was very little and, and she had a happy upbringing with her mother and her aunt and her twin brother. She feels she never missed out on a father, but at the same time now she has her own family. She thinks, so who could leave their family? That would I would never do that in a million years. So for her, the, the family unit is absolutely everything. And she's determined to keep it together. So even when Ludo's jailed, well, you know, it's obviously far from ideal. But what do you do? You know, do you just walk away and cause more chaos for your kids? Or do you try and make the best of it, stand by your partner and do the best you can? So she decides to go for the latter. But of course, as things progress, she starts to become more and more empowered. She finds out more and more about what she didn't know. And every single time she finds out something new it just plants another little seed in her brain where she thinks hmm that's okay right should I say something to him or not you know she doesn't want to turn up at jail and have an argument every time she visits him <laughs> she's got her daughter with her but on the other hand I think there's one time when she visits in fact I think in the book I've only got one visit but I but I wrote two or three visits condense them and that's the moment where she kind of loses her lollies and <laughs> says I've had enough and storms out that was very much influenced by again my editor who said this this is the turning point when's the realization that she can't she's becoming a bit sappish you know she can't just support him the whole time and it was only sort of looking at it through that lens I thought oh that's the moment you know you're visiting your husband in jail and he's still he's still telling her things like oh you shouldn't have changed the school for Anna and you know what are you doing here and she's looking at him going uh, you're in jail <laughs> I am making the decisions whether you like it or not <laughs> so I think one of my other favorite characters in this book is Libby's gorgeous and talented son Harrison in many ways he was the barometer of Libby's family's happiness and well-being he knew things weren't right long before she did and in the aftermath I think it's fair to say he was Libby's greatest support. But he had his own struggles, didn't he? He did. So he's a beautiful boy, very musically talented. And he is just finishing high school at the Conservatory of Music, another real place. <laughs> and actually, his experience is based on a, a good friend of mine who's a musician who went to the con and she gave me lots of top tips. So it was re reasonably real life. But I said to her, look, I've got this character, Harrison, and he's finishing at the con, but I want him to be unhappy. He doesn't want to be a classical musician, basically. She gave me some little pointers and said, well, obviously not everyone that finishes a, a musical academy goes on to be a classical musician. And, we, you know, I don't want to give away any spoilers, but there's another secret passion that he has that he's been pursuing. And of course, that's been secret. and That's been happening throughout everything going pear-shaped in, in the Libby and Ludo world. Yeah, he comes good eventually. It all happens in the climax and it becomes very wonderful, as you said. He's a real support to Libby and actually he almost becomes, I hate to use this very old hackney discretion, but the man of the house. I think he feels like he needs to step up. 
I was going to ask you if Harrison was inspired by anyone in particular, and it's really lovely to, to know that you were talking to somebody who actually graduated from the con. But I wanted to say that there's something to be said for kids who live with the weight of their parents' expectations on their shoulders, which makes them miserable, right? No, I can't even imagine it because I was, I was the opposite. <laughs> I was like a free-range child. Uh, you know, you'd come home with sort of failed exams and your parents would say, oh, well done. <laughs> uh, so you know weren't really that lovely people my parents were not not very engaged so yes to see the opposite which, which I see through my own children's friends not my children because I don't put that pressure on them but, but their friends in the world they live in you know I live in the north of Sydney and there are many many extra after school schools in this area for opportunity classes and so kids go straight from all day at school to schooling after school, whether it's academic, whether it's music. And I can only guess that most, if not all of those children are really happy and fulfilled. But I do often wonder, well, what happens if you're not, you know, what happens if you really just want to go and paint pictures or what happens if you just want to dig holes or, or whatever it might be, something that those OC classes is not helping you achieve uh, so that was that was the sort of probably a seed as well from from the background of raising my own girls and thinking gosh you know the expectation the pressure some people put on their kids um, and the lucky thing for Harrison is of course he's got two parents not one so uh, the balance redresses nicely once Ludo's safely in jail. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed lucky for Harrison. <laughs> so Liz You've had a whole career and working life before you came to writing. And I wondered if you could tell me more about your journey and what made you decide to write a novel. Well, I've always really loved writing, creative writing. I was that person through school uh, that wrote all the letters, uh, school and university. We all go to different to live in different places in the UK at uni. You don't tend to go to uni in your hometown. And I would write letters to all my friends and always try and say funny things. They'd write back. I've still got shoe boxes, literally boxes and boxes of letters here in my house that my family sent me in the early years when I moved to Australia. And even in the first few years of email, I would print those out and respond to them. So the spark, I think, was always in my brain. I enjoy engaging with people and making them feel good via the written word. So that that was the genesis of something that I guess became creative writing. And I worked at Nestle and many corporates for many, many years in marketing. And again, as a marketer, you're a key communicator. You're writing strategy documents. Every word counts. So still very much a wordsmith. And then a few years ago, I was uh, recovering from breast cancer. I'd had all my treatment and I was, I'd finished the treatment, but I was in the sort of few months phase of just having to, you know, basically nurse my body back to full health. And it was really, really boring, Claudine. <laughs> I was just oh, no. so bored. And of course, my family, my amazing husband, he's doing everything. And I, you know, I could do the old thing, but I just felt like I really was no good for anyone. It's just hanging around, getting in everyone's way. Poor man, you know, he obviously didn't want to lose his temper with me, but he, he I think he felt that he should have. <laughs> Eventually, he just said, look, I don't have time to scratch my head, but you've got all this lovely time. And I know you don't want it, 
but you do. So why don't you do something useful with it? Like, I don't know, write a book. <laughs> it's this throwaway remark. And I thought, hmm, there's something in that. So straight away, I went off and Googled creative writing courses and signed up for a couple of just sort of evening classes at the Australian Writers' Centre. And they were lovely and really enjoyed it. It was just very, very fun. And then I thought, well, maybe I could write a book. And I started to flesh out a few chapters on some fun ideas I had, not this book. It's another manuscript. And uh, and then I signed up for the how to write your novel course. And you had to have a minimum of 20,000 words. I think I'd written 8,000 words, which at the time I thought was huge. I've written 8,000 words. <laughs> it's so funny. I write 8,000 words in like, you know, two or three days now. But back then I thought, wow, I've written this much. And that, but you needed twenty thousand to actually join the course. So that that basically was the problem for me to write the first twenty thousand, and then I did the course and finished that novel, and it didn't go anywhere. Although it's still very close to my heart, and I hope for it to make somewhere someday. Now that I've been published, but it definitely was the beginning of my writing career. If there was one thing that you would like for readers to take away from this book, what would it be? I think it's never too late to reinvent yourself or to find happiness in a place that you never thought you would have to so I think a lot of us we kind of think we know the shape of our life you know more or less we think you know okay well there's this and there's this and I've got children and then I'll probably have grandchildren and then I'll sort of retire and then I'll you know I'll I'll grow old and die in my sleep peacefully age 102. I think we all kind of think we'll do that but it the reality is very, very different. Uh, you never know what's around the corner. And so kind of be prepared for anything, but embrace it as well, because I would never have written a book if I hadn't been sick. And of course, I, if I had my time again, I'd prefer not to be sick. But there's so many, so many wonderful, positive things came from it. I think on the whole, I would say, look, I'm very glad I was now. Now I can say that now that I'm well, of course, but certainly my life doesn't look remotely like it did and in a very good way and I think that was the journey that I hoped to recreate for Libby and I think it's true for anyone I wanted to make someone really relatable so that readers could read it and either think wow I really really relate to that or oh I would never do that you know I, I just wanted it to be real and her to feel like a real person that that could be in any of our lives. I think you've certainly achieved that with Libby. I thought she was a terrific character. Thank you so much. That's so lovely to hear. Liz, there are a lot of writers and uh, aspiring authors who listen to this podcast. Given all of your experiences, do you have any tips to offer anyone out there? So I'm not going to say write every day because I know lots of people say that and I just think that just puts pressure on you. <laughs> so I'm not going to say you have to, but if you are serious about wanting to be published, then really I say keep going and persevere. Now, there are many, many times when, of course, I felt like giving up because how how many how often do you do you keep pitching and keep being rejected? And of course, it was the lovely Joanna Mel as as ever that helped keep me going because she said, Liz. If you keep going, you might not get there, but you might get there. Whereas if you give up, you never will. And it, it was such a light bulb moment. I thought, oh, she's right. So anyway, I plodded along. And I think it was one month after she said that to me when we were having Christmas drinks. And 
I went to a festival, met my agent the following month. I was signed by a firm. That was all this year. So it was just by consistently keeping going, I suppose. And also, the more you write, the more you enjoy it. That's that's what I found anyway. Like it felt like my first book, I felt like, okay, I've got a book now. What shall I do with it? Everybody, look, I've got a book. It's really good. What shall I do? You know, and all the advice seems to be keep going, write another book. And I see, you can't just write another book. <laughs> what sort of advice is that? Of course, now I fully offer that advice to other people. Write another book. And you'll find it's such it's so much more enjoyable the second time. So so the Good Woman's Guide to Making Better Choices is the second novel that I've written, and I enjoyed writing it so much more, even though the first one was fun. This was better because I knew that it was better. I could feel that it was better. I could feel the shape of it better. I could see the gaps and I could, you know, even if I couldn't fix them, somebody else could fix them or tell me, you know, what needed to be fixed. And it was more enjoyable, like the same the same as anything. If you're flexing your muscles and you're improving your skills, then it's more enjoyable for you to do it, whatever it is. So keep going. That's what I say. And 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 join other writers because they've been an amazing wealth of inspiration for me. Listeners wanted to learn more about you and your book or books, as the case may be, at some point in the future. Where can they find you? I have a website, which is www.lizfoster.com.au. On my website, I have a newsletter, which you can subscribe to, which comes out to readers every month. Uh, it's full of lots of fun lifestyle tips and tips on life a little bit about book news but not much also on instagram as liz foster author facebook as liz foster author tiktok as liz foster author and x is it actually x now we call it x instead of uh, twitter it's formerly known as twitter (laughs) (laughs) it's like prince (laughs) so yes at all those places i've got the same uh, moniker so it's very easy to find me. But but the website's the easiest place just because it's my name and then all the other links are on that. And are you working on something else at the moment? Yes, I am. I have finished my third manuscript, which I'm tidying through as we speak. And I feel quite excited about it, which I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. <laughs> but again, it feels, it just feels right. It's about two jurors that sit on jury obviously they do not know each other so the story follows each of their lives and the story of the case and one of the jurors one of these two women is convinced he's innocent from the get-go and the other one's convinced he's guilty and then as the case progresses they both change their minds Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Well, I can't wait to learn more about that book in the fullness of time. Liz, I wanted to congratulate you once again on the publication of The Good Woman's Guide to Making Better Choices, and I wish you every success with it. Thank you for joining me on Talking Aussie Books today. It's such a pleasure. Thank you so much, Claudine, for having me. That's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, please drop me a line via my webpage at claudinetanellis.com, via Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. Alternatively, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. Until next time, happy reading.